So this morning, we're in the sixth week, I believe, of our sermon series through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter to uh, a group of Christians in Asia Minor, which is part of modern-day Turkey. And I've entitled this sermon series Stranger because that is one of the themes throughout the book, is that we live here as strangers, as resident aliens, as foreigners in this land, that we are citizens of heaven first and foremost before we're citizens of the United States. And so we try to live in such a way that our ultimate values, our hope, everything is found first and foremost in God and who we are in God and what he's called us to do before it is in what our country calls us to do or what our local government calls us to do. And the letter began by focusing on who we are in Christ, moved on to a section about who we are as the family of believers, and now it's in the middle of a section about how we relate to the world around us, especially uh, the unbelieving world, the people around us who don't necessarily believe in or follow Jesus. So we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22 this morning. So 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. Here we go. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, we recognize that this is your word delivered to this people in the first century, but it is also a word for us. And so we pray, God, please open our ears to hear from you, open our hearts to understand this, to apply this to our lives. May you be honored and glorified in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a great passage, but admittedly, it's got a very confusing section near the end, and I'm not going to be focusing on that, but I just want to briefly touch on that in case you're scratching your head at what just happened there at the end. Uh, He talks about Jesus preaching to spirits in prison. This is where, if you've ever heard, you know, the... uh, what's the, the Apostles' Creed, right, where it talks about him descending into hell. This is where some of them get it from, I believe. 
uh, believing that maybe he descended into hell after he was dead and preached to the spirits in prison there in hell. Um, probably not what this means. It probably means either that he was preaching through Noah to those in Noah's day, um, that Jesus was preaching through Noah and by the spirit, or that after his death that he preached uh, the victory to these demonic spirits. Whatever it is, it's not the main point of this passage. If you really want to look further into that's fine, but we're not going to focus on that this morning. Instead, we're going to focus on this section in the middle. He says this, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Love that. Don't you love that passage there where he says, Always be prepared to give an answer. If someone is asking you, why do you believe? What's the hope that you have? Be ready to give an answer. Be ready to share why you believe and what the hope is. And not only be ready to share, but do it with gentleness and respect. Not with arrogance, you know, but with gentleness and respect. And it says keeping a clear conscience. In other words, be ready to do it in such a way that your life matches your words, that you're not sharing what you believe, but your life contradicts it because you're doing it with such arrogance, you know, that it just turns people off. Do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Biblically speaking, if we want to define hope, I like this definition that John Piper gives. He says, hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. It's not just a wish, you know, I really, really hope that I get an A on that test. I really hope that I get to travel next summer. It's not just a a, a wish, but it's a confident expectation biblically. That's what the Bible means when it talks about hope. It's not just a wish. It's a confident expectation for something good in the future. Think about how important hope is to life. I mean, anyone who's ever had times when they felt hopeless knows how important it is. A good illustration that I've heard by uh, the pastor Tim Keller he gives an illustration that I've always found helpful. He says, imagine that there's two people working at the same menial task. They both got the same job, just screwing part A into part B, and they've got to do this for a year, eight hours a day in miserable conditions. And person one is told that they're going to be paid a dollar an hour. And person B is told they're going to be paid $1 million an hour for the same job. How do you think each of them is going to look at this job? Person one is going to say, this is just meaningless drudgery. It's just, oh, this job is awful. Just doing this meaningless work, eight hours a day and being paid a dollar an hour. But person B is going to be like, this is a breeze. Same job, same circumstances, but this is a breeze. I'm getting paid this much money just to do this. What's the difference between the two? It's, It's the hope that they have, the confident expectation of what is to come. That one person knows they've just got $8 a day to look forward to. The other person knows they've got $8 million a day to look forward to. Same circumstances, but a different outlook because of the hope that each of them has. And I know it's so easy to be hopeful when things are going well, right? When the marriage is going well, relationships are good, job is good, money's coming in, health is good. When things just look good all around, it is easy to have hope. It's easy to get up in the morning. It's easy to look forward to what's to come. Hope becomes an issue when things are not going well, right? When the relationships are falling apart and the job prospects are not looking good, when there isn't much money in the bank, when there's no hope of health ever improving, 
when there's not much good on the horizon to look forward to, that's when hope becomes an issue. And you say, how, how are you going to find hope when circumstances are so bleak? I mean, is, it just, is hope just an optimistic outlook? Some of you are probably more optimistic than pessimistic. Is, is that what hope is? Just saying, you know, like, better days are coming. You know, gray skies are going to clear up. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about hope? Is it just a word of faith belief that as long as I keep declaring positive things and positive things are going to come my way? Is that all that hope is? Just optimistic, positive words, that sort of thing? No. Hope is more than that. It's a confident expectation and a desire for good things in the future. And it's based on this. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And then skipping ahead, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That's what hope is based on. Not on word of faith, positive thinking, optimism. It's based on Jesus' death and resurrection. So let me talk about the three reasons that we have for hope. And I'm going to borrow in this from a sermon that is 400 years old from 1721. This is Jonathan Edwards' sermon entitled Christian Happiness. He preached this when he was, you ready? 18 years old. This was like one of his first sermons ever. At age 18, he preached this 400 years ago. And he had this simple outline that I'm going to draw upon that I think is just really good. It gives a foundation for our hope. And the first point was this, our bad things will turn out for our good. Again, how do you hold on to hope when you look at your life and it just looks like bad things? When you look at the relationships in your life and they're falling apart and you don't see much hope for things turning around, when you look at your financial situation or you look at your job prospects and it just looks bleak, when you look at your health and you're like, I don't necessarily see things turning around no matter how much I declare it. I don't necessarily think that things are going to turn around. Where do you find the hope that good things are going to come? In 1 Peter 3, he ends it by saying that Jesus has gone into heaven as at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. In other words, the one who died for you, who loves you that much, is now in charge, right? The one who died for you is in charge, reigning over the universe. He's got this. He's in control. And part of what we know about him being in control is this. You ready? Romans 8, 28 to 29. Anyone know this one? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. How do you have hope when things are going really badly? How do you have hope when you just don't know and you can't trust, you can't have optimism that things are going to get better tomorrow? This is a good start. Why do we have hope that our bad things are going to turn out for good? This is a good start right here, Romans 8, 28 to 29, that Paul says that our God is always working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He's not just always working for good for everyone in the world. It says he's working for good for those who know him, those who belong to him. He's working for your good. When you look at your life and you look at your health and you look at your relationships and you look at your finances and you say, I don't understand, 
where to find hope. I don't know what to, to hold on to as far as my future goes. I'm not sure why to get up in the morning. This is a good start, that we have a God who loves us and is always working for our good. Now look closely at verse 29, because you can't separate verse 28 from 29. He says that part of what it means that he's working for our good is that he's working to conform us to the likeness of his son. He's working to make you like Jesus. That's pretty important, because when you hear he's working for good, some people, what do, they, what do you think when you hear working for good? Oh, he's working for my good. In other words, he is going to heal my diseases. He is going to give me that promotion. He is going to restore my relationship. It's not what it says here. The good that he's referring to here is to make you like Jesus, which means that whether or not the relationship gets restored, he's working to make you like Jesus. Whether or not you get the promotion or not, whether or not the finances turn around, he is making, he's working to make you like Jesus. That's the promise here. He is always working for your good, and your good is not always material blessing. The good that he's working for is to conform you to the image of his son, to make you holy, to make you a person of joy, of love, of kindness, all the fruits of the Spirit, he's working those into you, and he promises to do that through whatever circumstances you go through. That is a real and certain hope. Real and certain hope, I said. You understand? Where do you get your hope from? It's not just an optimism that things are going to turn around. It's not a declaration of a word of faith. It's a trust that God is always working for your good, and that good is to make you like Jesus. Think of how that contrasts with the prevailing narrative about suffering in our world. This is Richard Schweder, who's a cultural anthropologist at the University of Chicago, writing about suffering in our world's, our culture in America's view of suffering. He says, the reigning metaphor of the contemporary secular view is that suffering is just chance misfortune. The sufferer is a victim under attack from impersonal forces devoid of intentionality. And that means that suffering is separated from the narrative structure of human life, a kind of noise and accidental interference into the life drama of the sufferer. I like that phrase there about the narrative structure. In other words, he's saying that the suffering, the world, our culture sees it as the suffering that happens to you, the, the marriage falling apart, the, the cancer scare, all of that, that it's an interference into the narrative of your life, which is, you know, upward and onwards to the American dream of good things happening. And this is an interference getting in the way of that. As opposed to what Peter is saying, that it's part of the story. It's part of your story. It's not an interference. That this marriage falling apart that you didn't expect, this cancer diagnosis that you didn't expect, losing the job that you didn't expect, it's not just an interference, but it's part of the story that God is going to weave into your life to make you more like him, to use you for his glory. It changes everything when you recognize that this is part of what God is doing, that he can take the evil that happens to you or the evil that you cause, and he can work it for good. It's not just some terrible interference. God is working for good. What happens when you look at the cross? I feel like this is so important to say as often as you can 
that imagine being a disciple on that day, looking at Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, I don't understand this at all. Where are you, God? God never seemed more absent than he did on that day. He never seemed more unloving than he did on that day. What kind of a loving father would let his innocent son die on a cross? God never seemed more absent or unloving than he did on that day. But now we look back and we recognize that God was never more present than he was on that day. That God was never more loving than he was on that day, right? Amen? The disciples looked at it and said, where is God? He's, he's absent. He's unloving, letting his son die like this. But in reality, God was present, very much present. God was loving, very much loving, taking our sin, restoring us to himself. Can I encourage you to take that approach when you look at your life, when you look at the suffering that you're going through, and you look at the circumstances and you say, I don't understand where God is. He seems absent. He seems unloving. You look at the cross and you remember that God never seemed more absent and unloving than he did on that day, but he was present and he was loving. And even if he seems in your life absent and unloving at times, trust and have hope that he is present. He loves you, that he is always working for your good even when you don't see it or understand it. You know, one of the ways that he works for good we see in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You hear that? For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. In other words, when you're looking at the suffering in your life and you're wondering, how do I have hope? How do I, how do I believe that something good can come out of this? Remember this passage that one of the ways that God brings good out of suffering is to use it to equip you to minister to others, to bring comfort and strength to others. Has anyone ever had that happen in your life? where you've been able to draw upon something that you went through that at the time you could not understand how anything good could come of it, why God would let you go through it. And then five years later, you find yourself encouraging someone else and ministering to someone else out of what you went through. Anyone ever had that happen? And you're looking back and you're saying, wow, it's amazing how God used that terrible circumstance that I went through. But he has used that so that I could be equipped to speak into the lives of others in a way that I couldn't if I hadn't gone through that. And when I talk about that God works all things for good, that he uses our bad things for good, sometimes this is what it means. Sometimes it's God allows us to go through things that are going to equip us so that then we can minister to others. One of the books I read in anticipation of this sermon was Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. It was a book written by a man who went through the concentration camps and lost most of his relatives and friends through it, but survived. He was a psychiatrist, and he wrote this book on his experience in the concentration camp. And one of the, fra- one of the, one of the passages I really appreciated that he wrote, he talked about a time when he was particularly discouraged in the concentration camp. 
and how he got through it. He said this, suddenly I saw myself standing on the platform of a well-lit, warm and pleasant lecture room. In front of me sat an attentive audience on comfortable upholstered seats. I was giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. By this method, I succeeded somehow in rising above the situation, above the sufferings of the moment. Notice that? Notice how he, he found he was able to get through even a concentration camp where his friends and family are being killed. As he pictured him being able to use this circumstance to minister to others, to encourage others someday. It's hard to do it in the moment, I know, especially, I'm sure, in a concentration camp. But to be able, as you're going through suffering, to recognize that, you know what? Sometimes God allows us to go through things that are really difficult, but he's going to equip us to be able to minister to others and bring comfort to others and encouragement to others in a way that we would never be able to do if we had not gone through the struggle and the trial. I don't think I've ever quoted Nietzsche before, but this was also in Man's Search for Meaning. He quoted him as saying this, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Knowing that God has a purpose and is using this allows us to bear almost any how, any situation. So that's the first rock-solid hope we have. How do you find hope in the midst of difficult circumstances? First and foremost, that we know our bad things will turn out for our good. We know that God is always working for our good to make us like Jesus and to use this situation that we go through to equip us so that we can minister to others. Second reason for hope is this. Our good things can never be taken away from us. Our good things can never be taken away from us. I mean, you take away God from the picture and you're left with the reality that everything good in your life will eventually be taken from you. Eventually, you're going to be standing at the casket of every person you love or every person you love will be standing at the casket of you, right? Everything good will be taken away from you apart from God. Your health will eventually be taken away from you day by day. Your career, all these things will eventually be taken away from you. I mean, that's life. You look back and you look at what once was. But the good news and the hope that we have in the gospel is that our good things can never be taken away from us. Because our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is in God. And the best will never be taken from us. Again, quoting Tim Keller, he said this, If your ultimate love and joy is found in the treasures of this world, then suffering will rob you of your joy and make you sadder and madder. But if your ultimate love and joy is found in God, then suffering will drive you deeper into the source of that joy. There's so much wisdom in that. That if your hope is located in anything in this world, job, career, finances, relationships, health, anything else in this world, then what happens when that falls apart, when it's taken away, when it's threatened? It's going to make you sadder. It's going to make you madder. It's going to make you frustrated, disappointed, upset. If you put your hope in anything in this world, I mean, again, that book, Man's Search for Meaning, <laughs> you know, the, he, he lived through this concentration camp where everything, everything was stripped away. Everything was stripped away. And he found that if, you're, if anyone who had their hope in anything in this world was just went into despair, 
It was those who had their hope in something outside this world who survived, who were able to hang on to hope. Where is your hope located? If it's located in anything in this world, you're in danger. But if your hope is in God, then all that is good will never be taken away from you. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And once you have God, your good things will never be taken away from you. Remember how 1 Peter started. He said this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. That's right, a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see that? You've been given new birth into a living hope, and it's kept for you in heaven, and it can't be taken away. Your good things will never be taken away. Apart from God, everything you have in this world will eventually be taken away. In God, everything that is good is yours forever. Romans 8, 35 to 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Because surely those things are gonna take away a lot of things in this world. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All that is good, you will never lose. It's yours forever. And as you serve him, you're storing up treasure in heaven, this inheritance, whatever it is. I don't know, I've never been to heaven, but it is being built up as we serve him. That's why Matthew writes this, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you're putting your hope, your treasure in anything in this world, it's going to be taken away. It's going to fade. It's going to be lost. As you put your hope in God, in Christ, you can't lose it. It's kept for you in heaven. It's stored up for you. And that's why Paul ends 1 Corinthians by saying, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Every single thing you do in the name of the Lord matters eternally. Your good things cannot be taken away from you. They're yours forever stored up in heaven. Again, it's your choice. You can live your life for the things of this world knowing that they will fade away and be lost. They will be taken away. Or you can live for God and your good things will never be taken away. So reason number one, your bad things will turn out for good. Reason number two, your good things will never be taken away from you. And reason number three, the best is yet to come. Amen? Our best is yet to come. How can we go through this life with hope? Even when things are falling apart all around us, even when things are not going the way we hoped they would go, it's because we know this world is not all there is. We know that the best is yet to come. Amen? This is not all there is. This world is not the end. Again, in this passage we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, 21 to 22, it says, It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven is at God's right hand. Okay? It's the resurrection of Jesus. 
And because he is risen from the dead, we know that all who die in him will live forever. John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus says to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This is the good news. This is why we have hope. Because this life is not all there is. Because all who believe in Jesus know that the best is yet to come. If this life is all there is, I really hope you got dealt a good hand. Right? I mean, what happens if you didn't get dealt a good hand health-wise, relationship-wise? What do you got to hope for? But the best is yet to come for all who know Jesus. I'm thankful Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.9. He said, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Can you just meditate on that for a second? I mean, I hope one day that I get to go to Hawaii. It sounds like it would be really nice, you know, to see Hawaii. But my hope's not in going to Hawaii before I die. It's not about having a bucket list that I got to cross off before I die because I believe that Hawaii is going to pale in comparison to what God's got in store for us in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Hawaii is going to be like going to Bridgeport. No offense to those who live in Bridgeport, right? I mean, it's going to pale in comparison. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Why would I put my hope in anything in this world when God's got that in store for me? The best is yet to come. Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You get that? The best is yet to come. Whatever you're suffering here on this earth, it's not the end of the story. The best is yet to come. No eye has seen, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That is our ultimate hope. That on that day, there'll be no more suffering, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more, no more of that. It's done. The best is yet to come. That's our hope. Not only that God is going to work our bad things for good, that the good things can't be taken away, but that the best is yet to come. And that's why Paul can write this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? As long as I'm here, I'm going to serve Christ, trust in him. And I know that when I die, the best is yet to come. That's why D.L. Moody put it this way. Soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I will be more alive than ever before. Mm. I just love how this whole section exposes. There's this, you know, best life now kind of theology out there, right? That you trust in God and he's going to give you prosperity and blessing and material wealth and all these things in this earth. And so many people have been tricked into believing that, right? If I just keep speaking positive things and these things are going to come my way, as if that's the hope that we have in getting a promotion at, at work, right? And having a bigger house. As if that's the hope that we have. Pity those people who think that that's the hope that we're holding on to. I mean, Peter in this section, remember what we looked at last week? He's writing to slaves, telling them, hey, hang in there, you know? Honor God as a slave. 
He writes to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, and he says, hang in there and honor your unbelieving husbands as to the Lord. He's not telling them they're going to get their best life now. Those who are being persecuted, he's like, you know, I know you're being persecuted, but honor the authorities above you. He knows it's not going to be all roses, you know, for those, a bed of roses for those in this world. Some people are going to be slaves until they die. Some people are going to have mental illness until the day they die and not going to be able to be healed of it. Some people are going to be childless even though they wanted a child, unmarried even though they wanted to be married, divorced even though they wanted to stay married. It's not always going to turn around. Our hope is not always in the things of this earth because they don't always turn around. Our hope is beyond that. It's in God who works all things together for good, who promises us that our good things can't be taken away from us, who promises us that the best is yet to come. That's our hope. And so if you are in a bad marriage, your hope is not that one day it's going to turn around or that your spouse will die someday. Your hope is that in knowing that whether or not it turns around, God is in it. God is working for good. Whatever happens in your marriage, God is working for your good to make you more like Jesus, to equip you to minister to others, that the love that you are longing for, the security, the intimacy that your heart has been longing for is yours in Christ right now and forever. And it's not going to be found in another human being, but it's yours right now in Christ. And that the best is yet to come, that all of that love will be perfectly yours forever in God. That's where your hope is found. If your work and career have not gone as you had hoped, your hope is not in getting that promotion. Your hope's not that one day you're going to be doing what your heart desires. That may or may not happen. Your hope is that knowing that your identity is not in what you do, it's in God, that God is always working for your good. Whether you're stuck at a job you hate the rest of your life, whether you're unemployed and can't even work, whether you get the job you want, the promotion you want, whatever it is, God is always working for your good. And he will use whatever you go through to equip you to minister to others that the, the meaning and purpose your heart is longing for is not going to be found in that job. It's going to be found in knowing and serving him. And that when you reign forever with him over the new heavens and the new earth, you'll find everything your heart has longed for and could never find this side of eternity. If your health is gone and isn't coming back, your hope isn't someday that you're going to get younger, right? That your health is going to turn around. That's not where your hope is found. Your hope is found in knowing that even though outwardly you may be wasting away, inwardly you're being renewed day by day as you fix your eyes on Jesus. And that one day you will live for him and there'll be no more suffering, no more pain, but you'll be in your resurrection body forever. Are you understanding where I'm coming from this morning? This is where hope is found. It's not gonna be found in anything in this world. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in him. Whatever suffering you go through in this life, if your hope is not in this world but is in him, then you're going to be okay because you know he's always working whatever is bad. He's working it for good. 
that your good things can never be taken away from you. The best is yet to come. Let me just quickly end with two things about how this changes our relationships because that's how this passage began. First of all, that means that you can love without being needy. You can go into every relationship without being needy. He began this section by saying, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. Can I encourage you, when you have put your hope in Christ, when you are looking for him to provide the love, the intimacy, the security that your heart is longing for, do you understand how that transforms your relationships? Because he's filling you up so that you can go out and serve and love. And he says, you can even repay evil with good and with blessing. So when you are in a relationship with someone who doesn't treat you the way you wish you could be treated, it's okay because he loves you and he is treating you with all the love that you need. And you can go out and love and bless and forgive and encourage even when they mistreat you. We don't need to go out into the world needy, looking for others to affirm us, looking for others to give us the love that our heart needs. When our hope is in Christ, that's where we get it from. And he fills us up so that we can pour out to others, even, it says, our enemies, even those who do evil to us. And secondly, we can love without fear. We can love not only in a way that is not needy, but we can also love without fear. Verse 13 to 14, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? In other words, saying, if, if God's got you, you know, what can man do to you? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. He's encouraging them. Just go out and love the way Christ has loved you. And if, they're, if people oppose you, don't be afraid of them. This is how Paul put it. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the one whose opinion matters more than anyone else has already declared you perfect in his sight and loves you, what can anyone do to you? Don't be afraid of other people's opinions. Don't be afraid of other people's objections. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. When you get this, when you, your hope is in him, you can go out into the world not being needy, not looking for others to meet your needs because Christ is meeting your needs. Your hope's in him. And you can go out without fear of what others can do to you because he's got you. He's for you. So let me end with this. What are the reasons you have for hope? When Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that is within you, what's the reasons for your hope? What's the reasons you have for hope in the midst of suffering? It's not just to give an optimistic, can-do spirit. It's not because you're declaring good things into the universe, believing good things will come your way. Your hope is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know because of that that your bad things will turn out for good. Your good things will never be taken away from you, and the best is yet to come. Put your hope in Jesus today. Amen. Let me pray, and the worship team can come up, and we'll respond in worship.
Lord, we confess to you that we have put our hope in people who have disappointed us and let us down. We've put our hope in circumstances that have not always turned out the way that we wanted them to. We've put our hope in our money, in our careers, in our health. We've put our hope in so many things that are shaky foundations for our life. But we declare, Lord, that you are a living hope who will not disappoint us. Help us this morning to look to you, to put our hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May that hope be unshakable so that we would be filled up by the power of the Holy Spirit, able to go out and love as you have loved us without fear, without neediness, but to bring glory and honor to you, to bring others to faith in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.